When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back into another episode of The Hard Foul. I'm your host, Pearson Fowler, and with me as always, staff writer for Gamecock Central, staff writer extraordinaire, Colin Taylor. We saw each other at the Carolina basketball game on Tuesday. Gave a little fist bump, a little high five, but it was not enough goodwill to propel South Carolina to victory. Maybe we need to come up with a more elaborate kind of secret handshake. Like secret handshake, Russ Westbrook and Kevin Durant. Like Oklahoma City Thunder, like 2011 style. We might need to do something a little more like that to create a little more goodwill for this basketball team because it didn't work. South Carolina lost their SEC opener to Florida by 13 points. A very interesting game. Storylines aplenty, which is you know good for us. Maybe frustrating for South Carolina fans because I think it would have been easier to swallow if Florida were just significantly better than South Carolina. And I think leaving this game, you can't really feel any other way than Florida is better than South Carolina right now. But despite the 13-point loss, it's still felt like a game that was winnable for South Carolina. Yeah, and I mean, you look at it, and South Carolina was in the game up until, you know, two, three, four minutes left. So, yeah, South Carolina competed with them. They were in the game for long stretches of times and even cut it to two, cut it to one uh, late in the second half. It's just Florida had better talent. Andrew Nimhard is, when you look at the head-to-head matchup between him and A.J. Lawson, he's better than A.J. Lawson right now. And that's at some some days you just get beat, and that was kind of the thought process. I mean, that's just kind of what happened. And there were things that I think South Carolina could have done to win the game, um, but at the end of the day, Florida has more talent than South Carolina does right now. On the one hand, you look at it and you say, well, if you get 18-10 and 10 out of Mike Coatsar, if you make 75% of your free throws, 18 of 24, including I think it was like 14 of the first 15 or something like that, those are all recipes for success. So Those are things that you wouldn't necessarily count on and if I told you when we were recording this podcast on, uh, I guess, Monday, that Coastal would have 18 and 10 and Carolina would make 75% of their free throws, you would think that was a recipe for success. But, I mean, you mentioned it right off the bat, and that's kind of where I want to start because that was the biggest storyline for me. We talked about the Team Canada teammates, and I don't know if Andrew Nimhard is just a better player than A.J. Lawson, period, but he was such a better player on Tuesday. Had his season high in points, 21, shot 8 of 14 from the field, incredibly efficient, 3 of 5 from 3, despite his shot being extremely flat. Like, it looks like it's going to go front iron every time, and it was just swish, swish, swish. Uh, Made both of his free throws, and then most impressively, 10 assists, 3 rebounds, 3 steals. Looked like exactly what Carolina fans thought and wanted to see from A.J. Lawson all year. Is is Andrew Nimhard, like, I, I, you know, I've watched a little bit of Florida, and he's good. That was obviously an outstanding performance. Is he just better than A.J. Lawson, or was he just better than A.J. Lawson on Tuesday? I think yes to both. Um, I think he's a little bit better than Lawson is right now. But, last, I mean, Tuesday night he was just – he was on a different plane. And, you know, A.J. scored 12, but that was on 3 of 15 shooting. A lot of those came off threes and then some three uh, free throws. But Nimhart, man, I walked out of that game and I was like, okay, he is NBA good. Like, this guy can – ball and sometimes a guy gets hot against you and there's not much you can do when South Carolina had a really hard time whoever they put on him whether it was Jair Bolden whether that was AJ Lawson or whoever and keeping him in front and he was able to get some line drives to the basket he was able to come off screens and hit threes and when guys are doing that it's hard to beat him and then of course 10 assists don't hurt his case either right well and the, the thing about that and especially with the 10 assists he just looked so in control at all times and that was one thing AJ Lawson seems to drift in and out of games and you know his style of play and we talked about this I think maybe the first podcast we recorded it's not necessarily a bad thing that you don't always notice AJ like if he can get to you know 18 and 6 without you really noticing that's kind of a, a good point for his game because it's not super demonstrative and he does a lot of what he does very quietly but I just could not take my eyes off of Nimhart he was the quintessential floor general Tuesday night and it was so impressive he, I mean, he seriously, like, I don't even know if he blinked. I was sitting, like, pretty close to the floor. I'm not sure if he blinked the entire night. He just looked completely in command, and and he was, you know, happy. And, uh, you know, part of this, you give Mike White credit for 
basically scheming it up like this, but Nimhard was just like, okay, Jair Bolden, AJ Lawson, doesn't matter who's guarding me. I'm just going to call a pick and roll, and I'm going to get whatever look I want wherever I want it, whether it's driving to the basket, whether it's stepping back for three. Um, and Carolina did such a poor job defensively guarding the pick and roll whenever Nimhard was running the pick and roll. I mean, there were a couple of times where guys just died on screens, and it's like, oh, gosh, like you should just miss the shot just just because you probably feel bad for the for the defender that just died on that screen. Like, it was really ugly at times. Yeah, and I mean, I know this is a Carolina podcast. We probably spent the first five minutes talking about Nimhard, but uh, yeah, they were their ball screen defense on him, on really everybody, wasn't great. And I mean, you picked that up early in the game, and they had trouble switching. And there was one point where A.J. Lawson was guarding Kerry Blackshear in the post, and Blackshear missed the shot. I was going to say, I actually got a miss out of that. Yeah, <laughs> but like, you don't want 6'6 A.J. Lawson guarding 6'11, arguably one of us big men in the country and giving up probably a hundred pounds <laughs> yeah I mean like you don't want that and they had some trouble with it and it caused some matchup problems and Florida converted a lot of those because they saw the matchup issue and they went straight at it and South Carolina didn't really have an answer offensively um, because of a lot of turnovers so it's it's one of those where they're easily fixable problems um, they need to screen better they need to get off screens better they need to limit turnovers but, you know, at, the, at this point, you kind of are what you are at some degree, and how much better you can get, I'm not sure at this point. That we've talked about Nimhard so much in the early going is interesting, and I mentioned the case for, wow, based on the box score, it looks like Carolina would have won this game again based on Coatsar's performance and the free-throw shooting. And if I told you that Kerry Blackshear was only going to play 20 minutes, he was going to be 11-5 and five, uh, with a turnover and three fouls, that seemed like the formula for success. We talked about, obviously, how good he is, how much of a threat he is, how much of Florida's offense runs through him. He got into foul trouble early in the first half, which I don't want to say was necessarily on purpose, but after he picked up the second foul, he was limping pretty significantly going back to the bench. So I wonder if he was just like, eh, get me out of here. Yep. My foot oh, hurts. Save me for the second half. Yeah, and then whatever they did to him at halftime certainly worked. I mean, he only shot 2 of 7 from the field, uh, 7 of 10 from the free throw line. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he, he you mentioned it before. I mean, he's he's there, Chris Silva. He, he gets fouled a lot. He fouls you know, a yeah. decent amount. And he makes a lot of his free throws. It was kind of fortunate for Carolina that he actually missed three of them. Yeah, Surprised but he hit under his season average. Right, because he's point. what eighty percent, eighty eight, something. Yeah, like that. oh, eighty eight. Wow, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, great free throw shooter. Carolina actually got a couple misses out of him, but all those things combined to wow, this is a game that South Carolina should have won. But the flip side of that is at halftime when they're down by three, you're like, wow, you know, you're getting a great performance out of Kotsar. You're making all your free throws. Blackshear didn't play at all, hardly, but what three minutes probably in the first half or. It was two or three. Yeah, yeah, two or three minutes in the first half. Same and, as Trey Hannibal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah, and we're going to get to that. But it was just everything kind of set up for Carolina to win this game, and it just wasn't enough. And for me, the difference uh, was, was Nimhard, and I guess if we want to like, spin it back to Carolina, because I guess this is a Carolina basketball podcast, it was just continued underwhelming performances from South Carolina's backcourt. We talked about it, um, you know, defensively, Bolden and Lawson shooting a combined 7 of 29 this is two games in a row now for Bolden after the 22 against Virginia. That's like, okay, well, what was that Virginia game? That's seeming more like an outlier. It, you know, it felt yeah. like, okay, maybe the Stetson game's an outlier. He's not going to be 22 a game like he was against Virginia, but maybe he's like 12 to 14 a game. Now it's looking more and more like that Virginia game. Yeah, the Virginia game was an outlier, and Lawson's inconsistent performances continue, and I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I mean, I think Frank's certain, searching for the answer, too. Um, when you win the front court matchup that you were hoping to win, with Kerry Blackshear not playing as well as Mike Coates are. And you got some decent production from a Levesque, a, a Frank. Um, McCreary getting back in the game for yeah, the McCreary, first time since Houston. McCreary playing bull in a china shop kind of basketball. Uh, I think he hit both of his free throws, yeah. He did. Both of his free throws, which is... They, they hit the rafters and then hit the bottom of the net. Yeah, and I mean, hey, if it bounces around, it goes in, it goes in. Uh, but you need, and Frank said it in the post game. you need the guards to set the tone for the game. And when A.J. Lawson and Jair Bolden are scoring, but they're doing it inefficiently, then it hurts your basketball team, and it really doesn't set a great tone. And when Andrew Nimhard is going off and hitting 8 of 14 um, and, and just playing like that, you lose the backcourt matchup, and it's hard to come back from that because the guards set the tone for everything. I agree with Frank on that. And if you're not getting what you want there, then it hurts. And I think I said it right after the game, they're defensively, they're struggling to keep guys in front of them, and it's impacting their offensive game and vice versa. So it's kind of snowballing is not the right word, but you're getting kind of some 
residual effects of poor play on both sides. And it was especially disappointing given that Lawson did start the game well. I think he hit his first two shots or two of his first three shots maybe. But that three corner corner threes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, all three of his shots that he made on Tuesday night were corner threes. Three of 15 did he shoot, uh, including four turnovers. How many assists did he have? Three assists. Three assists, four turnovers. So not good no. for his ratio. I think on the season he's like exactly one-to-one or pretty close Sounds to that. Right. Um, but you get off to a hot start offensively, does AJ. One, you're not able to keep it going offensively, and two, you're not able to keep it going defensively. Now, one of the curious subplots of this season, especially the last couple weeks, has been Frank's, I don't even want to say frustration with AJ, because it makes sense. He should be frustrated with AJ, who is supposed to be your best player and is not playing like that. But he has shown, and again, this isn't totally uncharacteristic for Frank, but I've been surprised with how short AJ's leash has gotten, and I wonder if that is starting to affect him psychologically. Like I'm just someone... In general, like if I were a coach, if if it's my best player, I'm gonna let him play through some of those mistakes. But Frank pulled him two or three times in this game, seemingly after a mistake. And again, you can't really blame him for that because he's not playing well. Clearly, he needs some kind of adjustment, whether it's psychological, whether it's something that he's actually doing schematically that he just needs to work on that he's not thinking about. You know, lazy turnovers, whatever it is. But on the other hand, I mean, he did play 34 minutes, so it was you know pretty brief since that he got pulled out. But I, I just I can't figure out what the disconnect is between those two guys, and I'm wondering, I, I don't know. I'm just looking for an answer because AJ feels like he's regressed from last year, and I don't have an explanation for it. Yeah, I think it's kind of what you saw from Chris Silva at the start of his senior year where there's so much pressure on him to perform, to be the leader, to do a little bit of everything that instead of doing one or two things really well, he's not. he's doing five or six things not as good as, as mediocre. And I think he's playing point, which is maybe not his natural position. But right now, South Carolina doesn't really have an established point guard, so you have to kind of play your best player there. So um, he's he's kind of trying to grow into a role quickly, and it's not worked maybe as well as they'd hoped. Um, like I said, it's kind of similar to what Chris Silva was last year where he's trying to grow into something um, instead of just being really good at two or three things. So... Time comes, I think AJ Lawson grows into it, but right now there's some growing pains involved. Uh, I think he's feeling the pressure of, hey, I was predicted to be a top 30 pick in the NBA draft. I need to live up to this. I need to be putting up 30 a night. And it's hard to do when you're putting so much pressure on yourself to succeed and you're going into games knowing one or two mistakes, I'm getting yanked for you know three, four minutes. Mm-hmm. So there's some added pressure there. There's a bunch of, I mean, there's a lot of outlying factors with AJ and his game's been good, but not great to start he's he's a swing two three and you're right he's asked he's being asked to play the point and not that the offense shouldn't run through him but I think it's different running through running the offense through him as the one and having him guard ones versus having him like running the offense through him but at the two or three South Carolina started the season with Jair Bolden running the point that didn't work and we gave Frank credit for moving Jair Bolden to a little more off the ball position and it worked seemingly for a couple games you know not so much the last couple games but I think that's eventually where he's more comfortable. And I think, I mean, AJ Lawson's a better ball handler than Jair, so that makes sense. But one of the other things that you and I have teased out is just wondering how much Jermaine Cousinard could factor in in terms of he and Lawson both sharing the court together. Obviously, it wasn't a factor on Tuesday. He's out with a back injury. I think still considered questionable for Saturday's game against Tennessee. So we'll really have to to wait and see on that. But that feels like it could be the next move, the next possible solution in, in terms of getting AJ you know, out of that primary ball handler responsibility. Kuznard, as we talked about, has shown so much playmaking potential this year. I mean, I think he, I think he leads South Carolina in average assists per game, like three and a half or four, somewhere in the neighborhood. He needs to get back because the other part of that equation, not even so much getting the ball out of AJ's hands, but when Kuznard's not in there, I'll tell you what's for sure not the answer to solving South Carolina's backcourt problem, and it's TJ Moss playing 13, 15 minutes a game. He continues to underwhelm me. He seems like a very, very low-impact player, He's afraid to shoot, and when he does shoot, he doesn't shoot well. He's 13 of 52 on the season, right, at 25%. He took one shot. He didn't make it on Tuesday. But Kuznard for sure needs to be playing the minutes over Moss. I know there's still some questions maybe about his defense, but again, his playmaking ability and his shooting upside and his willingness to shoot gives you a lot. And on Tuesday, obviously, the other big storyline was why is TJ Moss playing all these minutes that it seems like would be better suited for Trey Hannibal? And for that, there's no answer. And Frank Martin doesn't seem interested in discussing it either. Yeah, and with TJ, it's just he's a turnover liability right now. Um, he's got a turnover rate of 28.3, and the next closest guy is 
I mean, Trey Hannibal's <laughs> Trey Hannibal's is up there, twenty-seven and nine, um, but Trey Hannibal gives you some stuff that TJ Moss doesn't, and Frank doesn't really want to talk about it. Um, I'll give Frank a little bit of benefit of the doubt. We're not in practice with him. We don't see what Trey's like on a day-to-day basis. We just see him in three to four minute spurts that are obviously, I mean, amazing. He came in for two minutes, had four points and a steal and never played again. So, uh, that's frustrating from the fan perspective. I get it. Um, but uh, like I said, we're not in there day-to-day with him. Um, if it were me, and granted, I'm not getting paid $3 million to coach this basketball team. Uh, I'd play Trey probably 10 to 15, 10 to 18 minutes per game and just kind of let him grow and let him kind of mature on the court and then see how it relates to practice. But, you know, if he's not practicing well or, you know, Frank's big on if you don't practice well, you're not going to play. And so it's just one of those things where we're not in there day to day to see what it's like. No, and I understand, but there's some guys they turn the lights you turn the lights on and they perform. Yeah, no, and, I, and and Trey does that. You know, TJ Moss again, he's he's a low impact player. He's turning the ball over. He'll have a couple assists here and there just because he's always got the ball in his hands, but he provides you no scoring upside. So I, I think like best case scenario, he is a net neutral, he's a net zero player. I'm stealing the step from the piece you had. It was maybe not your instant reaction, but your what did we learn from Florida Peace on Gamecock yeah. Central over the last five games? TJ Moss minus nineteen. Yeah, I mean that's I, I, there. Are, you can say that's a flawed stat. It's not a perfect stat. You know there are problems with it. That includes the Houston game where South Carolina lost by twenty, uh, where he played a lot of minutes in that. So that's obviously going to hurt his overall plus minus. But you know at some point he's just not that much of an impact player. And and Frank Martin said you know he's a high IQ player. He knows where to be. At some point. When you're playing as an underdog, which South Carolina was to Florida, which they're going to be against Tennessee, which they're going to be against Auburn, uh, at this point, of SEC yeah, teams, yeah, except for like Texas A&M and Vanderbilt, and even Texas A&M had an outstanding defensive performance against Ole Miss the other night. When you're playing as an underdog, you need more variance, and Trey Hannibal provides that. And the thing that's most frustrating, um, again, to go back to when you turn the lights on, some guys just perform. I don't care what he looks like in practice. I know maybe that makes Frank Martin a little more hesitant to take him off the bench in the first place and just put him in the game at all. But when he gets in there. It's a small sample size, but two minutes, four points, a steal, and he jumped about 45 feet in the air to grab that steal and then throw in the most acrobatic layup that anybody finished the entire game. Right. Incredibly impressive. Gives energy to the team. You know, Energy in the Colonial Life Arena. Fans are going crazy for it because it was exciting. And then he doesn't see the floor again in the second half. He was the best player in the Stetson game. You know, He played well and did the exact same thing against Virginia. So it's not even like he gets in the game, he does something awesome, and then he does something stupid. Or you know picks up too many fouls or, or whatever. You mentioned his turnover rates high. I mean he didn't have a turnover uh, on Tuesday. I don't know if he had any against Stetson. It's it would be one thing if he were practicing poorly. He gets in the game. He does some exciting stuff and then he does some stuff that, that hurts the team. But in the last three games, he's basically been nothing but positive for this team. Yeah, and I think that you with a guy as talented as Trey is and as good as Trey Hannibal is, you live with some of the turnovers. Uh, you live with some of the the mental mistakes on either end of the floor because he's a freshman. Uh, but you keep him in there because I mean, he's made some plays that I mean, you didn't see from guys. I mean, Keyshawn Bryant's probably the only other guy that's as athletic as I was going to he say, is. he's Keyshawn Bryant. Here. He's defensive Keyshawn Bryant. Yeah, that's exactly In terms of just like, wow. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's fun to watch, and it brings some energy to a team that needs energy a lot. Uh, Frank Martin's talked about it. They need someone to step up and be kind of that leader. And... Uh, yeah, like you saw it with Dwayne Notice, you saw it with Sandarius Thornwell. Those guys were forced to play as freshmen, and they made their fair share of mistakes, and South Carolina wasn't a good team with them as freshmen. But as they got into their junior year, they won 25 games, and their senior year, they as Sandarius Thornwell, their junior year, Dwayne Notice was sixth man of the year, and their senior year, Sandarius Thornwell was SEC player of the year, and they went to a Final Four. So the growing pains pay off if a guy sticks around and stays in the program. And if you can get Trey Hannibal to be there for three or four years and you play him as a freshman, that only lends dividends. And I don't know what he's like in practice. We don't get the opportunity to see him, but what you see in games certainly lends itself to believe he should be playing more minutes. Yeah, well, and the other thing that's interesting is one of the things that I really appreciate about Frank Martin is he's very honest about his players. He'll be very honest about his team. We had a great week of practice this week. We had a terrible week of practice this week. This guy's playing well right now. This guy's not. It would not be unusual to, for Frank to come to the podium and be like, you know, if you ask him, hey, you know, why didn't Trey Hannibal play more? Be like, well, you know, he hasn't been good in practice. We've heard Frank say that. Yeah. He says that. So the fact that he chooses not to say anything makes it 
even more puzzling. It makes me, I don't, I don't know if it makes me more concerned, less concerned, because I, I don't know what the deal is, but he has no qualms about making a specific criticism about a player, and not even in a meme way, just be like, oh, well, he's just, he's just not playing well right now. He's not practicing well. He's, he's not doing this. He's not doing that. We know it's nothing disciplinary, you know, nothing related to his grades, nothing like that. It's just, he just doesn't seem interested. And it, I, I don't remember Frank acting this way about a player, but I'm, I'm sure there's guys that he has, you know, avoided talking about for whatever reason, but I don't know. This was, this one seems really unusual. I wonder, like, I don't know, did they go to Frank's house, like, for a cookout before the season, he like kicked his dog or something. Like it's weird because I think that's a lot of where this frustration stems from is the fact that he's being so coy about it. Mm-hmm. And when, like you said, he's never been shy about saying, "Hey, this guy's, you know, he might be good in the games, but he's not good in practice, or he's dealing with some stuff that we need to focus on." And you know, I'm not going to play a guy who's not been good at practice. But the fact that he doesn't want to talk about Trey Hannibal, I think fans are frustrated about. Frank Martin came out and said gave an explanation for it, fans can either take it or leave it, and then you're done with it. Um, but the fact that you don't really have an answer right now is is puzzling. And I think if Trey Hannibal doesn't con- continues to not play as much as fans want, then that frustration is going to start boiling over. I mean, it already was a colonial life. I mean, where the media said, I'm listening to people scream about Trey Hannibal being mm-hmm. you know put back in a game. So uh, fans want to see him, and I don't know how much they will Unless, you know, Frank has a change of heart and wants to play a guy that he hadn't really necessarily shown interest in playing these last. I mean, you look at his minutes played, you know, before the Clemson game, his high was 18 against Wichita State, but he hadn't played in three games already. He played eight minutes against Cleveland State, six against Boston, four against Northern Iowa, seven against George Washington, didn't play against UMass, didn't play against Houston. Um, 16 against Clemson, they won. 7 against Virginia, they won. Um, Stetson, he played 19, was best player on the court. Um, and then 2 against Florida. And I think I looked at a stat, and it's not to pile on TJ Moss, but their two biggest wins of the year, Clemson and um, Virginia, he played a combined 8 minutes. So it's mm-hmm. one of those where it's like, you know, and, and Trey Hannibal played, if I'm looking at it correctly, played 23. So you look at that and you compare it and say, well, what's the biggest difference? Jerry Bolden's one of those, but... Your bench played well in both of those games, too, and that's in large part because Trey Hannibal was out there. Yeah, well, and you mentioned this, too. Just this team so desperately lacks energy and lacks confidence and lacks an edge. Frank Martin has called them front runners. It's like you need, and this is a word that you use to describe Trey Hannibal, I think, independent of this conversation, but what you need is that bulldog mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, Frank made the comparison to Dwayne Notice in terms of a guy that, you know, wasn't necessarily vocal, like wasn't by any means necessarily the leader of the team but you always knew he was out there. He was always playing hard. Um, that's that seems like a fair comp in terms of <laughs> in terms of body type, yeah. in terms of like you know like literally mentality. everything about him. Yeah. yeah, everything about him. I mean, he 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 Dwayne has was a better three point shooter, but yeah, Trey's a better dunker. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. He's got more. Um, it's just it's it's really disappointing and it's really confusing. I don't necessarily think that that's going to change. I just don't have any reason to think that it will. Um, and so at this point, you probably expect to see more of the same on Saturday against Tennessee. Uh, in which case, if if you're a Carolina fan, I think the best thing you can hope for is that Kuznard's not out too long with this back injury because you want him to be taking more of those bench backcourt minutes because yeah. he just provides, you know, if nothing else, I know his, in the that same stat that you mentioned in your piece, his box plus minus uh, Kuznard's over the last five games wasn't much better than Moss's, I think minus 15 or minus 16, but he at least gives you a scoring upside, which, which Moss doesn't give you, and you need that if you're Carolina. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, I mean, I'm doing my math correct. Um, the last four games leading up to the Florida game, which he didn't play in, obviously, he was minus 15 against Houston, plus four against Clemson, plus one against Virginia, and then negative three or minus three against Stetson. And that's not a great game by game basis because obviously you lost two of those, so those are going to be negative. Right. But, but a huge you know, part of that is is the the minus in the Houston game. Yeah, which everyone. Um, I mean, they yeah, just got run no off the floor. Good. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you need Jermaine Kusnard in there, and you need a guy that can give you some playmaking ability. Um, he's top like 250 in assist rate in the country. So he has some natural playmaking ability. He hasn't shot the ball really that well, but he's still averaging close to nine points a game. So he just gives you kind of that, like we talked about with Trey, that bulldog mentality where he's just going to go out there and grind his way to nine points and four rebounds and 
you kind of know what you're going to get. The variance isn't there for him. You kind of know what you're going to get night in and night out from Jermaine. Whereas Trey Hannibal could come out there and give you, we've talked a lot about Trey Hannibal being really good, but he can come out and give you 10 or he can go out there and turn the ball over four times, commit two fouls and be done. Same right. with TJ Moss. So you need a guy with some consistency like Trey or like Jermaine Kusnard out there and it really shores up your guard rotation when you have him. My reverse jinx on Frank did not work. Ten minutes, zero points, got Ooh. blocked nah, a couple good, of times, right? Yeah, not a good outing for us. Uh, oh, yeah, it was really disappointing. I, I think I was too harsh in my framing of the reverse jinx. So this is gonna be you know, we're we're gonna have to we're gonna have to refine this process. Who was yours, by the way? Ooh, I think I said Jair. Jair? Okay. No. Did I say AJ? I can't remember. I might have said AJ. You may, maybe said AJ. Um it was not a good good night for our reverse jinxes. No, we're gonna no. have to we're gonna have very to, inefficient night for our reverse yeah, jinxes. Yeah, yeah, really. We're gonna have to refine our process. It was a good night for uh, Keyshawn Bryant. Had fourteen for three assists. A couple of those were absolute dimes. I was like, wow. Yeah. Um. It, that's uh, that's the other really frustrating part about watching the game on Tuesday and watching this team all season is you see flashes where you're like, whoa. Like you, you really still believe. I still believe in the talent of this team in the upside of this team. Because you know how good AJ can be because of the flashes that he showed last year and the flashes that he shows this year. You see what Jair Bolden can do when his shot's falling, like he did against Virginia. You know what Keyshawn Bryant can do. Mike Coates are, you know, he had the eighteen and ten. He's been really he's he's probably what, like ten and ten and six, ten and six and a half this year. Right. Like having a really, really nice senior year, and you know what he can do defensively. Two steals in the first couple possessions in that Florida game really kind of set the tone early in terms of South Carolina being in the game. You know, Kuznard, we know what he can do just sort of in flashes. Like, all of the pieces are there. It's just an inability to put together, which is why, a uh, quick note here, I saw this yesterday. I don't remember what book this is, so I'll have to uh, go back and double-check it. But right now, today, Thursday, January 9th at 9.30 a.m., I think this is still a thing. If you want to win $30,000 on the University of South Carolina men's basketball team, all you have to do is place a small $100 bet on the Gamecocks to win the National Invitation Tournament. They're Ooh. plus 30000 to win the NIT right now, which, I mean, like, again, they're not, it doesn't look like they're trending towards no. making postseason play, but if they put it together, just miss the tournament, make the NIT, again, you, the upside of this team is there that it wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world if they ended up winning the NIT. Plus 30000 that's a lot. That's amazing. Yeah, so... uh I'm not telling you you should place a bet on that. For entertainment I, purposes only, yeah. Yeah, well, and, and, and also because literally last podcast I said it will be a consistent theme that I will don't, tell you not to bet, bet on this basketball team. <laughs> yeah. But I was staggered at those odds. I mean, $100, even if you just want to bet $50, you could win fifteen k. Who couldn't bad. use an extra fifteen k in their pocket? That's fair. Oh, man. that's. Uh, I'm tempted, but I won't be that tempted. Um, shoo. Yeah, not, not a good outing, but you still saw the glimpses. You saw the potential that is there, and right now, Florida's just better. I mean, Andrew Nimhard, fantastic, legit. 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 It, it was it was fun to watch. Um, yeah. I, he wasn't even really on my radar as necessarily like an NBA guy. I don't know what his what his prospects were in terms of the NBA draft, where he was projected to get drafted. Is if he was projected to get drafted after this season, um, I, he's a sophomore, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know what it was going into the season, but if he turns out a few more performances like that, he's definitely going to be getting getting some looks from from, uh, from NBA types because he's just the, the he was a better Canadian on Tuesday. Yeah. Um, if South Carolina is going to win the NIT, or may even make the NIT, they're going to have to start winning some games. See, we're already put, we're already hanging banners up at Colonial Life at this point in the season. I, yeah, I know, right? Um, they're going to have to start winning some games, and that's going to have to get turned around on Saturday, going to Knoxville to take on Tennessee. Tennessee, who I didn't get a chance to watch it. I was sort of keeping up with it, because obviously I was in the arena with you, watching the Carolina-Florida game. Looked like they were hanging tight with Missouri. I mean, that was a close game for most of it. They pulled away one by ten, but... I mean, they were. It was you know within a three point game with about six minutes to go. Uh, Tennessee a little bit underwhelming. Obviously, they lost their SEC opener as well, and they've had a you know a, kind of a weird season. It's impressive that they have made it to nine and five. I think. Yes. Um, given what they lost last year, obviously Jordan Bone and Admiral Schofield and Grant Williams, and then even in the I mean just a couple of games ago, lost Lamonte Turner for the season dealing with shoulder issues that are going to basically end his college career, which is really unfortunate for a guy that was really good. Um, and they've been 
Digging deep into their bench, one of the fun stories for Tennessee, I guess if you're a Tennessee fan, has been the emergence of Santiago Vescovi. Yeah. He's got such a cool name. He's from Uruguay or something like that, somewhere in South America. And yeah. in his first game, I think he's only played two games. Yeah, yeah. he's only played two games. It's been it, a wild two games. Yeah, it's well, and his, his first game just absolutely filling out the stat sheet. Scored like 15 points, had a bunch of crazy dimes, you know. In the, also in the same, nine turnovers. Yeah, and like, nine turnovers. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. He, he did like the like the the Euro thing or like the South American thing where you come in and you're just your game's a little bit a little bit unconventional compared to the American game. I, I remember when Zach Lowe was writing a big piece about Manu Ginobili. Maybe the year that he retired or the year before he retired, something like that. The way that he described Manu's game is that he plays in between the dribbles, which is to say sort of off rhythm. I think that was a really cool way to describe it. That's something that, you know, I think you saw just from in flashes from Boscovi with all the turnovers and the fun assists. There was one that was like, he's like going out of bounds and he like threw kind of like behind the back. Yeah, it's like no it's look. Weird. Like, it's weird. I'm looking at his stats right now. In his first game, he shot 0 for 4 from 2, 6 of 9 from 3, had 6 rebounds, 4 assists, 9 turnovers, 3 fouls. Like, it's amazing. And then, obviously, he goes out against Missouri, scores 12, shoots 3 of 4 from the field, 4 for 5 from free throw line, 5 turnovers, 2 assists. I mean, this dude's wild. And you have no idea what you're going to get. Yeah, I mean, talk about variance. He is, like, the yeah. epitome of variance. And that's what Tennessee needs because, again, you're, you're already trying to replace a lot of what you lost last year. Lamonte Turner, who is going to be one of your best players, if not your best player going into the season, is not going to be there at all for SEC play, which is... Good news for Carolina fans, uh, but Tennessee has still managed to, to they've gotten to nine and five. Their losses, they lost to Florida State, obviously a pretty good team. They lost to Memphis, pretty good team. They lost to Cincinnati, they lost to Wisconsin, and they lost to LSU. So, you know, a, a handful of really quality losses in there. As I mentioned, getting the win against Missouri on the road. I don't, I mean, not like necessarily a team of world beaters, but still getting a temp, getting a double digit win on the road in the SEC. And defensively, they've been fantastic. They're allowing fewer than sixty points a game, which does not bode well for a South Carolina team that. They scored 68 against Florida, but still don't feel great about their half-court offense, especially if A.J. and Jair aren't shooting the ball a little bit more efficiently. Right now, ESPN's BPI says Tennessee has an 85% chance to win the game. That seems a little bit high for me. Ken Palm's at 81. 81? So oh. I think it's kind of that same. Jeez. Yeah. That no, seems no high. No confidence in I, South Carolina. Uh, this is a weird Tennessee team, but, I mean, they're, they're definitely really not, good defensively. They're really they're good really, defensively, really good but, defensively. oh, man, I don't know. I, I feel better about this than I felt about the Florida game for sure. And that was a game that, like you said, was kind of in the balance until about five minutes to go. It's just one of those where it's like, you know, you're going on the road for the first time in the SEC with a young team, and um, who knows what you're going to get because South Carolina, I don't think South Carolina knows what they're going to get from their team. No. And well, uh, the one thing that you know is they've they played well on the road this year. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know how much of that is the teams that they've played, um, but obviously yeah, Virginia's Virginia excellent. And <laughs> yeah, although Virginia yeah. losing to Boston College Tuesday night as well. You're, now I think if you're a Carolina fan, you're worried about that you're quad cl- one win on sliding one. into quad two. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Which would be bad news. But obviously, at that point, that's behind South Carolina. Yeah, All they can do is worry control. about what's in front of them. Uh, you know, what, what else? You Obviously, you know, good defensive team, as we mentioned a couple times, just good team defensive team. What else should Carolina be looking for, game planning for, for Tennessee? Yeah. So, I mean, Tennessee's not, they're not the at the offensive level they've been at the last few years with Admiral Schofield, with Bone with um grant williams they're still top 100 scoring 105.1 points per 100 possessions uh but what's really kept them in games and helped them win nine uh has been their defense i mean you look at it i mean they're top 40 they're 37th nationally in defensive efficiency their effective field goal percentage against is top is 30th i mean their two-point percentage against is 41.1%. 41.1%. So teams are shooting 41% from inside the three-point line, which is really, really good for Tennessee. South Carolina has almost 60% of their points coming from inside the three-point line, which is a lot. And leaving a lot of points on the table inside the three-point arc, too. I mean, yes. they've, they've missed a lot of bunnies all season. They missed a lot of bunnies against Florida, whether it was just like missed layups. There's that one sequence where Carolina got like three offensive rebounds because they just missed a bunch of putbacks in a row. Um, those are baskets. I mean, you always need those baskets. I don't know if that would have made a difference in the Florida game, but that will, that will almost certainly be the difference in, in the Tennessee game, which will probably also be much more low scoring than the Florida game. Yeah, I mean, and Frank's talked about it. They've had trouble scoring at the rim lately, and Tennessee packs the rim. They have a really good block percentage against. Um, they, you know, they force some turnovers. They do a lot of things well and defensively speaking inside 
and it's her it's it's going to be an interesting matchup because they're going to probably key on Mike Kotsar and say okay we're going to make AJ Lawson shoot the ball we're going to make Jair Bolden shoot the ball and we're going to make your other bigs play well against us and if they beat us then so be it but if not then we're going to make sure we're going to take your best option away and force you to shoot the ball if I was a team playing South Carolina right now I don't think I would do anything but a two three zone where I'm saying if you're going to beat us you're going to have to hit seven or eight threes to do it that's Probably a good bet. One of the things that I think probably we could have foreseen being an issue for Carolina, um, but didn't because I think we were all expecting a little more productivity out of their backcourt is the lack of any true post option. We know Mike Kozar wasn't going to be that guy. Levesque and McCreary are you know good energy guys. You can count on them, I guess, theoretically to go get some offensive rebounds and putbacks, but mostly it's like rebounding and defense. They're, they're not anyone you're going to dump the ball to in the post and just let them go to work. That's pretty much only Frank, and with the backcourt now struggling – the post touches have become a little bit more important, and we talked about this heading into the Florida game. You know, it was some it was a game that you felt like, okay, this is this is Frank's opportunity because you feel like they're going to need something like that. Uh, this feels like a, a similar game from that respect. So, if it's not Frank, then who is it? Now, again, Kotsar's done a little bit better, but you know, he's he's done a lot of his damage catching the ball at the elbow, either popping that jumper. We saw him have a couple drives, uh, one where he missed a bunny. It yeah. felt like he should have just dunked just, it. Just dunk it, dude. Just, six. I know, I know. It, it, it. I think that's why he missed it. It looked like he was going up for the dunk, and he was like. I don't want to miss the dunk, and then he tried to switch to like a little finger roll to lay yeah, it like in. Fade away, yeah, yeah, like weird. Uh, which was a bummer. You can't see me doing it, on the, but like it's this weird fadeaway thing that he did, and it was bad. Yeah, it, it was it was bad, and he missed, and it was a, that felt like a big momentum swing, frankly, yeah. for for Carolina. Um, but that was he, in like a two or three point game, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, it was close. I, it was. I don't remember exactly what the score was. You see, was on a run. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was it was a, you know unfortunate timing. So that to say, like he's been good. He's been good at scoring. Obviously, he's it's not like he's out there shooting a lot of threes, so he's getting it done, you know, from in the paint. But it's not, you know, traditionally back to the basket. But if if he's not attacking that way, which you can't count on necessarily every game, then it's got to be Frank or McCreary or, or, or Levesque. But again, they're not they're not the kind of guys that you're necessarily giving post touches to. So it's kind of Carolina's kind of in a bind. And it, to go back to basically where we started this, it all gener is, is all all these issues are being generated from the fact that they're not getting enough productive scoring from their guards yeah and I think this is a game where you're gonna kind of wish McKay Henry had developed a little bit more in the non-con because you could use a guy with that size and that strength out there um, is it too late to bring him back into the rotation I know he's, he's played what two games this year I mean, maybe not three. really too late but it's just one of those where he just if he had developed he'd be playing right now just because you don't have another post option outside of Coats are you need something and he just hasn't gotten it for you yet so you need I mean, I'm not like I said, I'm not getting paid three million dollars to coach this basketball team. But if I'm Frank Martin or if I'm developing the game plan for this, I'm playing one in, four out, and spacing the floor and driving because AJ Lawson's really good at drawing fouls and shooting free throws. And I think this is gonna you want to turn this into a free throw shooting game because Tennessee is they're not great, but they're a decent shooting team. Um, they turn the ball over a lot, but they're shooting 33% from three, which is pretty okay. Um, they're shooting 50, 49, 50% from two, which is, again, just okay. And they're shooting 74% from the free throw line. So if you can force Tennessee, if you can't, if you don't foul, and if you can get to the free throw line, you feel pretty good about your chances to win this basketball game. Kind of. And it, of yeah, and, and I'm wondering kind of what that means for Carolina defensively because with the with the four out one in you wonder who that is if it's Kosar you feel pretty good if it's Levesque you feel you know pretty good just in terms of like defensive mobility pretty pretty good on switches yeah. yeah rim protection things like that but then you're kind of losing that offensively so I, I'm wondering if they do go that route or, or or could this even be a game where you see Carolina go you know really really small I don't know if I mean if you don't feel good about your ability to get inside and get those post touches you put an extra shooter out there Maybe you widen those driving lanes just a little bit, but one more shooter out there just to I mean, increase your odds. Because I don't know what Carolina's shooting from three on the season, but I'm guessing it's low thirties. Um, you're being generous. It's okay, a high twenties. High twenty. What twenty eight point five percent? Which is one hundred thirty first in the nation. Out of oh, fifty five. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not good. It's not good. Well, which is, I mean, I don't want to say it's weird because at this point we have enough of a sample size to say that maybe these guys just aren't good shooters. Yeah, but it's it's not like. 
any of these guys shoot, and I'm going, no, 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 you know? Yeah. Like, when AJ and, lets it fly, I'm like, I could go in. When Jair lets it fly, ah, that could go in. Manaya, you well, know. they've we, shown flashes of doing that. Yeah. Fr- I think that's the frustrating part for them, for us just watching, and for fans, because you're like, you, you've shown the ability to hit three or four of these in a game, but then you go one for seven, and that's, I think, the frustrating part for a lot of people. Oh, man. Too many problems with this team, and not enough answers, and yeah. Just the flashes make it all the more frustrating. Um, Tennessee, really good defensively. Probably a low-scoring game. So if Carolina is able to win this, pull off the upset, I don't know what the line on this is going to be. I imagine similar to Florida, you know, four or five, six-point game, something like that. If Carolina is able to pull off the upset, we're thinking it's going to be 58 to 54. I felt better about this, the Florida game, than the Tennessee game. Oh, really? Just because you're at home. The matchup works a little bit better with, you know, Blackshear and Coates are, but you know, they have Josiah James and they have this, you know, Santiago Vescovi guy that you, you just have hope no he idea has about. A nine turnover game and get you eighteen transition points. Yeah, and I mean, you got to play fast, um, fast offensively, slow Tennessee down. You know, uh, you know, you got to make sure that Tennessee can't get their defense set, and if you can attack them in spots where they're not fully set, then great. And then you need to clean up on the offensive glass, which they did not do against Florida. Or the defensive glass. Yeah. I mean, if you're not hitting shots, they shot like 38%, I want to say. That means you're missing a lot of shots. And you need to be a better offensive rebounding team. You need Justin Manaya. They didn't get a lot from Justin Manaya against Florida because of foul trouble in the first half. And then second half, he was just okay. You need Bryant, you need Manaya, and you need Mike Kotsar to go out there and rebound the ball in the offensive glass and they just haven't been able to do that as consistently as they want to this year i feel better about the tennessee game than i did the florida game for the same reason that i felt better about the virginia game than the florida game um i don't even know if it's fair to say tennessee's as limited offensively as virginia because we saw it again against boston college like that team can just they just can't get to 60 and can virginia um, now, Tennessee's scoring a, a little bit better than that, but offensively they're averaging, I think, like right at 67 points a game, which is uh, you know worse than South Carolina right now. I, I just feel better about, given South Carolina's lack of shooting, given their general propensity to miss free throws, although that was not the case against Florida. Hopefully that marks a turning point. I'm not necessarily counting on it because I think you and I both agree you kind of are what you are in terms of your ability to, to knock down free throws. But I, I just feel better about Carolina in a low-scoring game well, maybe maybe that's not even fair to say. I just feel worse about Carolina in a high-scoring game fair. than I do in a low-scoring game, and given that we've seen them you know, win a big low-scoring game on the road against Virginia, I, I feel a little bit better about it. And there's also something, too. You know, I was wondering, if you're a Carolina fan watching that Tennessee-Missouri game on Saturday, who are you pulling for? Do you want Tennessee to be downtrodden 0-2 in the SEC, or are you more afraid of them being 0-2 back at home with their backs against the wall, feeling a little bit desperate? I, I feel like... This is a little bit make or break for South Carolina. Um, you know, you and I mentioned it's a tough stretch. You can probably survive a two and three start, but zero and two, still having to go to Kentucky. Auburn and obviously play Kentucky on Wednesday. This this is a backs against the wall kind of game. And if Carolina doesn't respond, if they don't step up, come out with sort of a newfound energy, if they look deflated, I think that might sort of be that that might seal like six and twelve. Yeah, and. It's hard to say you're in the danger zone this early in the season, but if you get to 0-2 and, and you still have two teams that are in the top 25 that have chances to be Sweet 16 or Elite 8 or even Final Four teams in Kentucky and Auburn, things really aren't good for you. You could start 1-4, and four, or if you slip up against A&M because you're looking ahead or looking behind you, you could be 1-4 and four or 0-5. You're... So far behind the eight ball, you can't see the eight ball. I mean, right. it's one of those where you need to get two wins in your next four games to feel good about your chances to get to 500, if not better, in the SEC. But if not, I mean, there really aren't that many games you go into and say this is a surefire win for South Carolina after that. There are not many right now. No. And if you beat, if you lose to Tennessee, then there's even fewer than that right now. Yeah, there, there's no, there's no gimme wins for this team the way they're playing. Obviously, you lose to Setson, you can't guarantee a win against anybody. The closest you're going to get to that, like I said earlier, are Vanderbilt and A and M. Unfortunately, your first trip to A and M, you have to go to College Station. That is 
four games from now. That's their fifth game of SEC play. So you put that in the WCOM because you absolutely have to. And again, if you are going to shoot for the low end of what we projected was possible and reasonable for this team in terms of making some sort of postseason play, you have to win one of these next three games. Two of them are on the road, Auburn and obviously this game against Tennessee, and then the home game against Kentucky. And, uh, you know, watching Kentucky and Georgia after the Carolina game, I mean, Georgia looked really good in the first half. They went on a really impressive run to end the first half, and then Kentucky just came roaring back in the second half, won that by, it was either 9 or 11. I don't remember it was, if it was 78-69 or 79-68. They, they won it. They kind of won it going away towards the end of that by game. By 9 points, yeah. 78-69. Yeah, 78-69, so they, they looked really good. <laughs> yes. Obviously, Carolina. NBA again, talent. Yeah, oh, everywhere. I mean, Carolina's shown variance and is at home, and Carolina's beaten Kentucky when Kentucky was probably even better than this Kentucky team was, so you never count that out, but you're also not counting on that. So you look at, I mean, really this Tennessee game, because as you mentioned, Auburn like might be the best team in the SEC right now. Who knows at this point? Kentucky, Auburn, Arkansas, take your pick at this point. I mean, it's, so this is, this is, you know, backs against the wall, really find out a lot about this team, kind of pull out all the stops. <laughs> Not to harp on like the Moss Hannibal thing, but when I talked about variance, when I talked about you know Carolina needing that in, in scenarios where they're underdogs, it's funny that Frank Martin has criticized his team. I said this on my local show yesterday, so sorry if this is redundant for any of you that were listening to that. Frank Martin criticized his team for being front runners, but I feel like his insistence on playing Moss over Hannibal demonstrates his own front runner mentality because when you have someone like that, again, Moss offers very little upside. He's just kind of a safe neutral player even though he has a high turnover rate I think like theoretically at least what he provides defensively in terms of not being out of position in terms of not making some mental mistakes that maybe some of the younger players like Hannibal are prone to make it feels like a just a safe neutral kind of selection going with him off the bench and that's a front runner mentality you can't just play guys that are net neutral when you're trying to pull off an upset. Again, even if it's a marginal upset, you need someone that gives you a little more upside, even if you risk having a little more downside. You know, it's like it's like it's like an onside kick or going for two or something like yeah. that. And this calculated like, risk. Yeah, it, it has to be a calculated risk. So for Frank, I think it's gotta be more handleable minutes. I think you got to get really creative with your lineups. I mentioned earlier, you know, maybe this is where we see South Carolina go really small. We still see him experimenting with lineups. There was one lineup that he played Tuesday night, and I don't remember offhand what it was, but I was like, this is probably the first time this lineup has ever played. Um, so he's still being, he's still, you know, getting creative, trying to just find combinations that work, which is in, in some ways a luxury because you have the guys that you feel like you can tinker with some of those things and also really frustrating because you don't have a lot of lineups that necessarily have continuity. I think you mentioned the lineup that's played the most for South Carolina this year is the starting lineup, and that's only been like 10% of. The total yeah, minutes played or something like that. So much. Yeah, so it's unbelievable. So you wonder, does he get a little more creative? Obviously, I don't expect the starting lineup to change, but do you go like extra small? Do you play extra big? Um, you have some options. This is for me kind of a, a pull this pull all the stops out kind of game. So this is it's at one o'clock on Saturday. I don't know. You feel worse about the Florida game? You feel worse about the Tennessee game than the Florida game? I feel a little bit better. Um, we're going to learn a lot about this team on Saturday, yes. and that's going to dictate, I think, how much fun these podcasts are to do for the rest of the basketball <laughs> season in a lot of ways. Um, our reverse jinxes were bad on Tuesday. Do we reverse jinx ourselves, or do we just try again? I say we give it one more shot. Give okay. it a college try. All right. I'll you can go you first go. this time. Okay, I'll go I first. I went first last time. <clears throat> I think he started the season great. He kind of disappeared. He struggled with foul trouble. He's a theoretical shooter. He shot well most of his South Carolina career. Hasn't exactly found his stroke this year, except in a couple of big moments. He's someone that doesn't get a lot of talk in terms of being a leader, although he is a veteran on this team. He's a veteran presence and is really key to most of South Carolina's interesting defensive lineups because of his versatility, because he can be like a swing 3-4 or 5. I think this is a big Justin Minaya game. I don't know... If A.J. Lawson can handle the spotlight, he hasn't for most of this year. Mike Kotsar has been remarkably consistent. I just can't expect anything out of Jair Bolden. He's too up and down. This feels like a game where Frank Martin says, Justin, you've been around this program for a while. I need a little extra from you. Go out there and win this basketball game for us. And he says, oh, captain, my captain, 18-11 like the opener. Was 18-11 in the opener? 
That sounds about right. Yeah. I was getting worried there because the way you were talking, I was like, damn it, I hope he doesn't take mine. Oh, no. All right. Yeah. This, this, this feels like this needs to be a, a Mania game, just a steadying presence. 17 and 11 in his first 17 and 11? Mania. Yes. Uh, started the season so well. I know. I forget how good And then just disappeared. But he can do that. Yeah, he can do that. And I mean, think about how people talked about him before he got hurt, you know? He was, he was glue. He's the ultimate glue he was, guy. Yeah, he's the ultimate glue guy. And yeah. this is the game where the glue guy has to make a difference. Yeah. All right. So mine, a guy that's been good but not great, coming off his best game of the year against Florida, hasn't really clicked. He's missed a couple big plays, uh, missed a few alley-oops, missed a few things here or there. But I'm going to go Keyshawn Bryant. This is a guy that, because you remember his last year, these Tennessee games really exposed how far away he was from competing with a guy like Admiral Schofield. And this was always the game Frank Martin used to inspire him to say this is a chance to go up against the best wing in the SEC. No Admiral Schofield. This is Keyshawn Bryant's chance to go out there and prove how far he's come in a year to prove he's healthy. And I think he's going to go for, let's say, 18 and 8 with a few monster dunks, including one that will spark a big run that South Carolina is with. I love that. Yeah. That's a hell of a prediction. Yeah. And also just adding to Keyshawn Bryant's resume, which again, it's been an okay season for him. Obviously he missed a lot of time. And then since he's been back, it's been mostly up and down, but did play well against Florida. And I, I mentioned this earlier too, but I just love the playmaking ability that he flashed. He he threw some of the he threw a couple passes that I was like, is that Keyshawn? Like the not one, that I thought he was a bad passer, but he's normally the one just like attacking and finishing. Yeah. But he's he's really sharp and got a good feel for the game. That one to Manaya in the first half mm. under the basket where he like literally throws it past a Florida player yeah. was beautiful. Yeah. I mean that, that was that was an NBA pass. Yes. Now we just gotta do that like, you know, seven times a game or something. Yeah, if like only. <laughs> yeah, if only. Um all right, there we go. There's our reverse jinxes. Hopefully we do better than we did against Florida. I'm gonna cast a little baby reverse jinx on ourselves for screwing it up last time, and uh, we were awful, yeah. terrible. It's all right. It's all right. Yeah. We, we, we can't we can't get them right all the time. Um, before we get out of here, you and Wes and Chris and everyone at GamecockCentral.com had a lot of fun before the new year doing the all decade teams. Obviously, as we headed into a new decade, I talked about the football team, the all decade team with Wes and Chris yesterday. And uh, Shout out to Wes. This is I mentioned this on the podcast yesterday, and y'all should go listen to it if you haven't. And if you haven't, it's probably because you're not subscribed to the GameCrack Central Podcast Network, in which case go hit subscribe right now so you don't miss any of that. But uh, shout out to Wes for pointing out that Donnell Stanley is the only person that deserves to be on the all-decade football team for South Carolina because he was the only player that played all-decade. Yeah, I mean. Because <laughs> he's like 40. He's played like 10 years. Um, didn't necessarily have that with the all-decade uh, men's basketball team, although you made a note. That, that threw me off a little bit because Wes was texting me about this while y'all were working on it. And I cast one of my votes for the all-decade guard for Devin Downey because he that, played into the 2010 season. And you said that that, yeah. that doesn't count. That was one that I struggled with. Now, direct all your angry tweets at me. I ultimately chose not to include that half season in 2010 uh, as part of the all-decade team, which ultimately left Devin Downey off of it. If we were going to include that half season, Devin Downey would be 1A, 1B, 1C. I mean, he was legit for all of it. Right. Um, so if Devin Downey were on this team, and real quick, just to run down your... Well, this was actually an, an aggregate of uh, everybody yeah, on Game Park vote. Central voting. So you can tell me if you differed on this too. But as as presently constituted, and you can check this out on GameCockCentral.com, guards, PJ Dozier and AJ Lawson, wings, and Darius Thornwell, forwards, this is actually a, a split vote. Chris Silva, Sam Mul- uh, Chris Silva and... Sam Muldrow slash Michael Carrier got the same amount of votes. Did you have any differences in those? Or rather, who did you cast your pick for for the other forward? I think I put Muldrow as my other one in Carrera coming off the bench. Muldrow was just, he was the SEC Defensive Player of the Year. I mean, rim protector. He was pretty much Chris Silva before Chris Silva. He had Carolina's last triple-double Yeah, with blocks. I mean, he's, oof, he was legit. So if Devin Downey had been eligible... Would you have replaced AJ Lawson or PJ? You got to replace AJ Lawson, yeah, just because he only played one season in the decade. Uh, still, my freshman of the year, freshman of the decade by far. Um, but yeah, I mean, Devin was Devin was Devin, and then PJ was so 
he wasn't great his freshman year, but he was consistent. And then obviously his sophomore year, the tournament run he went on, it's hard not to include him in that. Yeah, that was that was an interesting year because obviously Sundarius Thurman missed whatever it was, six or seven games, and PJ really held it down. He was scoring like twenty two or twenty five a game yeah. while Sundarius was gone, and then Sundarius came back and his production took a little bit of a hit. Obviously played well in the tournament, and then I, I think left a little bit of a bad taste in Carolina fans' mouths leaving a little bit earlier than people thought he should, especially when you think about what the the team the year after he left could have been if only they had a steadying presence at point guard rather than the Hassani Gravit experiment all season yeah. long. In the um, Felder whole thing with that. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was unfortunate the way that it ended. Um, I'm glad that he did get the nod here, um, I guess, over Downey, even though Downey wasn't eligible just because I think he was a, a better player but, than people. And I will say that hurt me to not include him. I know, then. I know really unfortunate. 18 games in the in the year. It's yeah. So, I mean, like, I guess if you just look at, like, productivity over the course of the decade, just the 18 games puts them at a little bit yeah. of a disadvantage. Uh, three guys coming off the bench. You went Bruce Ellington, Dwayne Notice, Brenton Williams. Other receiving votes, Ty Johnson, uh, Sam Muldrow, A.J. Lawson, Rakeem Felder, P.J. Dozier. Uh, no votes for Frank Booker? Yeah. it was just the one year, but yeah, it was, it was a heck of a year. year. Frank Booker never really cropped into my head as you don't think about him. I think that just based off the team he played on where they weren't, they think they went 7-11 and 11 in conference play. He didn't play all that well. Um, he had a great year, but it was just one of those where if you're not on a great team, it's hard to really stand out. Um, Love Frank to death was a great interview. I mean, still chat every now and again, but yeah, I don't know if I would include him on the old decade. I think if I'm remembering correctly, my bench was Bruce Ellington, Dwayne Notice, and Michael Carrera. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's a good one. That would make sense because he was, he split with the, like I mentioned, split with the starting forward. So he was not necessarily in the bench category, but that's a, yeah. that's a pretty good one. Um, a couple of these that were no brainers. Coach of the decade, Frank Martin. Duh. Freshman of the decade, AJ Lawson. I think that was unanimous. I yeah. Think I was AJ Lawson. Votes, none. Yeah. Um, defensive player of the decade, uh, Chris Silva. Uh, Dwayne Otis also did receive some votes, but that one seems like a no brainer. Um, six man of the decade. This, there's a little bit of discussion here, and I'm saving the most discussion for last. Six man of the decade. Dwayne Notice got the vote. Was that your vote? Yes, I okay. voted for Dwayne. Or no, I voted for Chris Silva. For six man of the decade? Oh, six man, sorry. Yes. No, um, I voted Dwayne Notice. That was easy. Uh, yeah. I think Hassani got some votes. Yeah, Hassani there. got some votes. I, I think that's a, that's an interesting case. I, I think Dwayne deserves it, but I, I'll be, I would be curious to see what the voting breakdown was. Yeah, I think... Because Hassani was in like that all role but was... one got Hassani got one vote, oh, okay. if I'm remembering correctly, because mm-hmm. I compiled all that. But he's the guy that I think if I was going to put... If you got two votes for six man of the year... Then Hassani's probably right up there, but Dwayne just did it at such a high level for mm-hmm. so long. It was such a key, yeah. p- such a key piece for two of the best teams in program history, that twenty-five and then the final four-year team. So mm-hmm. um, it's hard not to put him up there. And and Hassani was great, but Hassani was a role player for one year. It was not good one year, and then was obviously became really really good his senior year. So. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not I'm not arguing yeah. with that. By no, the way. My, no, my no, vote that's just 100%. the rationale for like what how I voted. Yeah, yeah, I, 100%. I completely understand why you would put Hassani in that mix. Well, but I, I mean, yeah, in the mix though. But I would for sure vote for Dwayne. But Hassani, sort of like PJ, it's like the one bad year he had when when Frank Martin was trying to go square peg in a round hole, yeah. make him the point guard. I think colored people's expectation of him because again, really good as a six man, and then his senior year was was really really good, really productive. He, he shoot like forty percent from three that year. It was year. amazing. What it was fantastic, and obviously six man of the year in the SEC. Yeah, and he's still um, playing. Professional ball is with the Magic right now, mm-hmm. or with their G League, D right. League team, whatever it is now. So, the most interesting one, and others receiving votes in this category was none, which is disappointing. Player of the decade, Cindarius Thornwell. How's that interesting? So here, I'm, I'm just going to read the blurb from GameCrackCentral.com again. A pretty easy no-brainer. Thornwell was the best player to come through the program in a very long time, and he's still playing professionally. He was SEC Player of the Year as a senior and was one of the more decorated players under Frank Martin and was also the East Regional Most Outstanding Player during the Gamecocks' Final Four run. I'm not saying that Cinderius Thormel should not have been the Player of the Decade, but I'm insulted that Chris Silva did not receive any votes, especially when you consider the narrative, the entirety of his career, how raw he was starting out, and the fact that he became... You know, we knew that he was going to be good defensively, but became an offensive fulcrum for this team. Twice was... SEC all-defensive team, I think first team one year, second team the other. He was SEC co-defensive player of the year, his junior year, and for whatever this is worth, is having the most productive pro career of any South Carolina player since Ronaldo Bachman. You make some compelling arguments. Uh, I don't know if the pro 
argument should factor into yeah, this or not, but, but he is my favorite South Carolina basketball player ever is Chris Silva. That's fair. And I think that uh, he got defensive player of the decade. But when I sat down to vote, it was what, when I think about South Carolina basketball, these from 20, the back half of 2010, not Devin Downey, please don't angry tweet me. <laughs> don't add him. Yeah. <laughs> um, into the end of 2019, who do I think of? And that person was Cedarius Thornwell. And that person was him sitting on the floor at Bond Scores Wellness Center screaming at the Duke game. I mean, this one shining – when South Carolina basketball's one shining moment plays, who's the most featured player on that one shining moment? And yep. it's Cedarius Thornwell. Man, and as it says right here, you know, East Regional most outstanding player during yeah. the Final Four run. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. I just – I feel like the it should have been like 70-30. Okay. Or 80-20. There should have been an acknowledgement for Chris Silva. I can't believe nobody voted for him, just for posterity. I mean, it's just, like, Bitsendarius is such a no-brainer. He's the one, he's South Carolina basketball's one shining moment. I'm glad that he won it. He deserves to win it. I just want to see more Chris Silva love us all. But anyway, that's the uh, team of the decade. This was, um... If I was going to, if we're going to put most fun people to cover, it's Chris Silva. Chris Silva was a fun basketball player to cover because he was so honest and when you're talking to him kind of outside of basketball, he's hilarious. So if we're going to pick favorites to cover, it, it, it probably Chris Silva and Pop, probably Hassani. Mm. So those are the two. Well, and, and I, I mentioned some of his accolades, but I also forgot to mention, and I don't know how I forgot to mention this, I should never forget this, is the NCAA's all-time foul leader. There's something to be said oh, for yeah, that. No. Yeah, Think a banner. Think <laughs> I, a banner. <laughs> I think he got that like either the last or the second-to-last game of the Came season. Came out of the wire. Year. Yeah, it was, it was impressive. It, it looked like he was easy on pace, and then he slowed it down which was great news for Frank Martin, bad news for me, probably neutral for everybody else. I was really rooting for it. I, I remember talking about it like the day before he did it, and Tommy Moody was very upset. He was like, that's a very dubious distinction. You should not be gunning for that. You should not be pulling for him to get that. And I was like, no, no, no. This is, this South is Carolina's going to get a record holder. Let them have yeah, a record holder. Yeah, just one. Just yeah. one. And, and you just got to hope that no one uh, no one breaks that. But anyway, that is on GamecockCentral.com. Check it out. Uh, Colin Rota and the entire Gamecock Central staff worked on it. If y'all disagree, I think this one was a little bit easier than the football one. It was a good decade for men's basketball, but not the best. Yeah. Whereas, you know, football, that was the best decade ever in the history of South Carolina football. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, not a lot of hairs to split necessarily on this one. list. Baseball, baseball was by far the hardest Baseball. One. Golly. Um, yeah, I don't even, I don't even, I can't even do that. I can't even start. All I know is Matt Price was the best. And I took a lot of flack for that, for saying he was the player of the decade. Mike Roth's the goat. Everybody, Mike everybody Roth said Mike always, Roth. Everybody, Mike Roth's the goat. Matt Price goat. was the best closer in college baseball for two years. And Mike Roth Closed was out, the best pitcher in college baseball for two years. <sighs> but closers are cool. Closers yeah, are closers, cool. Closers are pretty badass. Just ice in his veins. Didn't matter what the situation was. The amount of jams that he got out of. Obviously closing out both of those national championship clinching games. Struck I'm surprised out like fifteen thousand people in two years. I think was the number. I'm so, Blake Cooper doesn't get enough credit for what he did in 2010. I know we're just kind of bouncing all over the place, but I mean, some of the stories like Blake Cooper's arm was dead for the that UCLA game where he went out and pitched eight innings mm-hmm. in 2010. I mean, dead. And mm-hmm. I think he pitched the entire College World Series with a broken non-throwing hand. Oh wow! I don't yeah. think I knew that. Yeah, I mean, he was that dude was nails. And he deserves, I think I put, I voted for him as one of my decade pitchers just for that reason, because he was so <laughs> tough. He broke it against Coastal. Oh, wow. Foul ball into the dugout. He went to go uh, pick one up and hit his hand. He got fouled off into there. And um, The Christian Walker game. Christian, like. he That's Jay's vote for player of the decade. Jay that, I think I voted JBJ, but. Christian Walker is my freshman of the decade. Yeah. Um, I mean, JBJ, Christian Walker, Michael Roth, Matt Price. Like, that could have been, like, 25, 25, and 25. Or 25, 25, 25, yeah, and 25 I mean, in terms amazing. of splitting the vote. And, like, the stories you hear about Christian. The one that I was really bummed to leave off the list for baseball was Adrian Morales. Mm, yeah. Um, I think LB Dantzler had better stats. I think Jonah Bry was better defensively. But Adrian hit, like, 280. But every hit was in like a big moment. Yeah, and like he was—he I mean, was a real. He was the glue guy. Oh, well, like when you look up glue guy in the dictionary, it's Adrian. <laughs> it's just a like, picture yeah, of that beard. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, just the the stories you hear about him with—I mean, getting in Christian Walker's face when he broke his handmade bone in eleven. Um, there's the the general. I mean, Texas A&M in eleven when Mike Roth gives up four runs, 
in the first inning, and A.J. Morales corners him in the dugout and goes no more runs, and Mike Roth goes out and throws, like, six shutout innings after that. Like, I mean, it's just, I mean, A.J. Morales is the stuff of legends. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Christian Walker sleeping with his hand taped up to the the bed to stop blood flow to his broken hand so he could the swelling could go down. I mean, there were some stories from those 10 and 11 years that are just, I mean, golden. Incredible. And you did the oral history of the 10 I did the 20, no, all three, the 11, 10, 11, 12. You did all of them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The 22 game wins. Yeah. Year. That was last summer or yeah, last summer. baseball season or something. Yeah. So yeah if, if y'all missed that, it is, I mean, obviously an evergreen story. That's also on GameCrackCentral.com. Yeah. So much good stuff to go check out. Um, seriously, plugs. go check out all these, uh, all these, all decade teams. It's, it's been about a week, but we're still, you know, pretty fresh in the new year. So uh, go check them out. Let us know. What did we get wrong? I mean, not me. I didn't cast any votes. I, I, I talked to Wes about it in an unofficial capacity, but let us know if we're if we're crazy. Um, Please if, angry tweet Wes and Chris and not me. Yeah. Um, oh, and angry tweet me, too. I, I want to hear all the people that are angry that I think Matt Price is the baseball player of the decade and that Chris Silva should have gotten at least 20 percent of the votes for basketball player of the decade. But um, this is a lot of fun. Great decade for all of South Carolina athletics. Again, not the best necessarily like individually for basketball, but the best for football, best for baseball, best for women's basketball. I think all across the South Carolina athletics department, the 2010s were great. Yes, hope the uh, you know hope as someone that covers this team, I think both of us would would like for this decade to be at least as good or even better because it's just a lot more fun when the team recovering is doing well. So we get less angry tweets, less angry posts on the message. Yeah. Now some some of the angry tweets and angry, you know, calls um, whatever are, are good, but it's it's bad when the apathy sets in like happened with the uh, yeah. with the football team last year and like is maybe in danger of happening with the basketball team should they lay an egg on Saturday against Tennessee. We will be back on Tuesday to discuss whatever the heck happens in that game and then preview the Kentucky game. So thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe if you like this. Check out another Carolina podcast. Wes, Chris and I are back on that. And uh, a lot of good stuff going on right now. Spring football is right around the corner. Obviously, National Signing Day for football is right around the corner. And basketball season is well underway. So plenty of stuff on GameCockCentral.com and the GameCockCentral Podcast Network. Thank you all so much for listening. For Colin, I'm Pearson. We'll talk to you next Tuesday.